Let's take a look at what reopening really does look like. Charles Gauthier with the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association joins me on the line to talk a bit more about this. Charles, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Joe, for the opportunity. What is your sense on, with phase two officially starting today, are businesses ready and eager to open, or are we going to see more of a a phased-in approach? I think we'll see a phased-in approach. I mean, we saw Pacific Centre open up on Friday, and uh, the Bay is scheduled to open today. Uh, And then um, I've been looking through, uh, just like anyone else's, through social media, Apple stores are opening up. Uh, tomorrow and then Thursday, I saw a notice that Nordstrom downtown will be opening. Uh, and we've had discussions with a number of these retailers over the course of the last couple of weeks about best practices. We had a representative from London Drugs uh, join us on a Zoom call yesterday, uh, sorry, last week, and we had uh, 40 retailers uh, join in on that just to learn from their uh, experiences over the course of the last two months. And that was really helpful for them. Uh, to do that and share that with our membership. Uh, so a phased-in approach, uh, I think, as everyone is putting in place their uh, their uh, physical distancing uh, decals on the floor, uh, getting their plexiglass barriers uh, installed at the cashiers, and and figuring out how they're actually going to deal with um, items, uh, returned items as well. So. You know, it's really been an eye-opener from our perspective in terms of, um, you know, what's involved in having stores get ready to welcome customers back, as well as restaurants and and then personal services as well. And what is your response when we when you talked about the new protocols? So I was looking at that as well. Uh, places where you could, say, a clothing store where you could try clothes on rather than just putting them back on the racks. Uh, some stores saying, well, we're going to put them away for 48 hours or they're going to be steam cleaned and held for mm. a certain amount of time and put back. Uh, do you think there are enough things like that that will install confidence in the consumer to come back? I believe so. I mean, I think that there will be people uh, that um, are probably ready to, you know, go back and shop uh, in person versus doing online shopping. And and I think there will be a component of people that will just continue to be leery. And I think that the only thing that the the, the business community can do uh, is uh, put in those those best practices and communicate it as frequently as they can in terms of how they're going to make it safe. and I think it's just to instill that confidence that, you know, it is okay to come back. I mean, we've been told by Vancouver Coastal Health that the chances of uh, the virus being transmitted on any kind of material, like clothing, as an example, is, is you know, probably limited, uh, probably not going to happen. But I think it's just about just communicating what you're doing to make the customer feel as comfortable as possible. And what do you think about restaurants as far as uh, we heard today, Earl's is getting ready to reopen. Uh, I saw yesterday a couple of smaller uh, coffee shops putting their tables back and umbrellas back. What do you think that's going to look like? Again, um, I know I'm I'm ready to go back and have a meal in a restaurant. Um, I think as long as I, I see and I'm just speaking from my own perspective, as long as I see that they're doing the right things in terms of uh, the distance between tables and, you know, how they're going to handle food, uh, how will servers come to the table, is plexiglass installed, um, you know, to provide uh, those as much as they possibly can, those precautions uh, and those measures that will reduce the risk of the virus being transmitted. I feel comfortable to go back. I mean, I've been ordering, you know, my wife and I have been 
ordering takeout food once a week and someone's coming to the door and they're wearing the gloves or I go pick it up and I see the, the measures that are in place and I feel comfortable doing that. So I, I'm ready to go out and experience a meal at a restaurant uh, possibly as early as this weekend. And did council move fast enough or are they moving fast enough as far as the motion to, to relax rules as far as expanding on patios and even into public spaces? Yes, because I, I don't think that the restaurants would have been ready any time earlier than this week. Um, we're hopeful that by the end of this month, those particular um, processes will be in place for restaurants to make an application uh, for an expanded patio or to have a patio for the first time. I mean, our preference would have been, you know, make it really simple, allow the restaurants to do it without an application required and for the city to just go and do inspections as required, maybe based on complaints if they weren't providing adequate uh, room for um, pedestrians to walk by, if a, if a restaurant had taken too much real estate. Um, but again, I, I'm, you know, we're satisfied that if they can make the application process uh, relatively straightforward and uh, a quick turnaround time, and we've been told, and I've been listening in on those council meetings, that it could be within two days that uh, upon an application that um, the city would issue a permit. I'm hopeful that they were not going to require, um, you know, a, a gated area or barriers to be set up uh, to separate the space from uh, where pedestrians will be able to travel. Uh, I haven't seen any of those details yet. I'm looking forward to seeing, um, you know, what it might look like in terms of permitting that. Um, but again, our preference would have been something that would have been a little bit more straightforward and quicker to implement. Yeah, and I, and I think most would agree. Uh, make it complaint-driven, uh, open it up, and, and treat people like adults uh, would be nice uh, in this scenario especially. Uh, we'll see what happens with that. People are noticing as well empty storefronts and wondering about the number of restaurant or sorry businesses that perhaps aren't going to reopen. Do you have any sense on businesses that are going to be permanently closed? I don't have that now. Um, you know, certainly, we are expecting uh, that scenario to unfold where uh, a number of businesses are not going to be able to uh, survive these conditions. Um, I think some of it is really going to depend on, uh, as from Vancouverites, are we prepared to embrace and support our local business community and uh, you know shopping there instead of buying online? Um, I think that uh, what we're seeing in terms of uh, curbside delivery and uh, other businesses adopting online commerce uh, is likely going to become much stronger uh, because many are, I think we're all kind of expecting there will be a second wave of the virus. And uh, the only way to be resilient uh, in this, um, in these unprecedented times, there I said it. Uh, you know, I think that businesses are going to have to adopt these these platforms and continue them, uh, you know, well into the into the future because that's the only way they're going to be able to survive this. Um, you know, we're it's probably going to take a while for uh, the daytime workplace population to come back. Um, I'm hearing that uh, occupancy in the office buildings will probably be about thirty percent uh, in the next uh, little while. I'm not sure what that means in terms of time frame, but I know in the building that we're in, we're not seeing anywhere near the number of tenants and employees that we would traditionally see pre-COVID-19. So I think it's going to take some time. And uh, if businesses have these various platforms in place in terms of online commerce and curbside pickup and delivery and takeout, 
they're going to have to continue to, I think, well into the future. All right. Uh, We will be uh, putting the question out there to people and seeing uh, what uh, their confidence level is as well. Charles, thank you so much. Always good to chat with you. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Well, every year, the Fraser Institute puts together the calculation or does the calculation of how much tax Canadian families pay. And that's on all levels of government, federal, provincial and municipal. And usually it's a bit later in the year that we see Tax Freedom Day. However, this year it falls on May 19th, which is today. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Niels Veldhaus, president of the Fraser Institute. Niels, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me on, Jill. Uh, Just explain a little bit uh, better than I just did. What exactly is calculated or how do you come up with the number of tax paid or the amount of tax paid and and where that day falls? Yeah, you bet. I mean, look, everyone has a hard time uh, figuring out how much tax in in total that they pay. I mean, we we see our income tax that we pay on our pay stubs, um, but there's so many other ways that that government tax, uh, the property tax, sales tax, liquor tax, gas tax, carbon tax. And so, what we try and do is, is give Canadians a measure of their overall tax burden. Uh, and we to take an average Canadian family and say, look, if you had to pay all of your taxes up front, you would have to work each and every day from January 1st to today to pay for all of the taxes levied on you. And it's earlier this year, my guess is that has something to do with COVID-19, but not exactly, according to your calculations, a reason for celebration. Yeah, normally Tax Freedom Day would be a cause for celebration. Uh, but look, this year, the, the average Canadian family is still paying $43,000 in taxes, roughly, to, to all levels of government. Uh, and Tax Freedom Day does come a little bit earlier this year, but that's because, uh, obviously, we've been decimated by the, the government's response to this pandemic. Uh, the economic shutdowns have caused many Canadians to, to lose income, uh, and we're also consuming less. So um, both on income taxes and consumption taxes, we've seen quite a decrease for the average Canadian family. Uh, so would you suggest or su- suggest that uh, perhaps the governments d- did too much as far as responding to this? Because some would argue that the steps taken were necessary because of the health and safety of Canadians. Yeah, well, well, certainly steps were necessary to prevent surges in, in the hospitals. And um, I think we still have to do a lot of analysis in terms of looking across the world at um, how much and, and which countries got the balance right between uh, protecting the health and safety of their citizens, but also allowing their their, their economies to keep functioning. Um, we, we know that the economic shutdown is having a pretty dramatic impact uh, on Canadians, certainly feeling a, a significant amount of pain, almost five and a half million Canadians either out of work or, or having their hours substantially reduced. Uh, that's had an impact on, on obviously on their incomes. It's also had an impact on, on the taxes they're paying. So we are paying or the average family's paying a little bit less this year. But again, that's very little to celebrate given the fact that we still are paying $43,000 on average uh, in taxes to all levels of government. Uh, and you factored in as well, or did you factor just how much of a factor it was that with the shutdown, with people spending more time at home, uh, not able to go to restaurants, just how much people are spending less when it comes to sales tax and that kind of thing? Yeah, for the average Canadian family, and I think we have to remember, or I should remember that everyone's experience is going to be different. Um, some people are still working. Some people, um, both income earners are not working. But if you do take the average Canadian family, uh, consumption has gone down. They're expected to, to to spend significantly less and pay about $2,200 less in sales taxes uh, this year. So obviously, incomes and consumptions uh, have been deeply impacted by uh, by the shutdown.
And uh, is it possible even at this point to look ahead? I mean, this, I mean, there's a global pandemic. Obviously, this year is very different from previous years. Is it possible at this point to look ahead at uh, what kind of, what recovery will look like? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think part of the recovery will be what is the government's response. And, and I think if we are focused on the economy, if we're focused uh, post-COVID on, on getting workers and employers and entrepreneurs back and getting out of the way, and, and I think that means looking at the regulatory burden, I think if we're, if we're concentrated on those things, we could have a, a pretty substantial rebound. And that certainly would be the hope that, that governments really pay attention to what do we have to do to incentivize our workers, our entrepreneurs, our business leaders um, to get out and invest uh, and, uh, and continue uh, to, uh, to grow the economy. And, and that's really what we're going to be focused on post-COVID. Do you think there's an opportunity here as well in that even talking about something and I get it's not it's not life changing or life or death when we're talking about restaurant patios opening up. But there certainly has been a push from restaurants, from business saying, look, this is not the time for a five week study. Can you just open it up? Let us do this and we'll go from there. Do you think there's the opportunity in a scenario like that or other uh, scenarios where it seemed quite easy to get rid of the red tape to keep those measures? Yeah, I think we are going to have to look at red tape. I think the restaurant example is a great micro example. Obviously, we have to look at this across our entire economy. We have to reduce red tape for businesses. We have to reduce red tape for entrepreneurs to let them experiment and let and let them uh, do things that are not only in their best interest, but also in the best interest of, of average people and, you know, have a better experience, for example, in a, in a restaurant or a patio. So absolutely, I think we're going to have to look at red tape. We've got to do things faster. We have to let the innovators innovate faster. We have to let the entrepreneurs uh, serve their, their customers um, faster. And so I hope that red tape reduction is going to be something that the government looks at, not only here in BC, but, uh, but right across the country. Uh, last year, uh, going back to Tax Freedom Day, it was on June 8th. So that's a pretty big difference going from June 8th to May 19th. Is that all because of COVID-19 or are there other factors? Well, you know, ordinarily for that kind of reduction, um, I, I would be celebrating, but unfortunately it has nothing to do with governments reducing taxes. In fact, um, you know, we've seen tax increases, the federal carbon tax obviously uh, increased. So, um, you know, unfortunately, what we're seeing is a reduction is, is due to the fact that Canadians are losing income. They're, they're not consuming as much. And, and therefore, the taxes they're paying have, have gone down. I would suspect that in the future, Tax Freedom Day is going to increase dramatically. And um, that's because the economy will rebound. But that's also because of the level of uh, deficits and debt that the governments have taken on. And when you say increase, you anticipate then it's going to be later in the year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we calculate something called a, a balanced budget tax freedom day, and that's a hypothetical tax freedom day that says, look, if the government's actually had to balance their budget, if they had to raise taxes to cover all of their spending, what would tax freedom day be? Uh, and, and this year, tax freedom day would come almost 70 days later, so late July, um, if uh, if governments actually had to balance their budgets. And, and that's a really, that's a signal to average Canadians that, look, we are taking on substantial deficits, or our governments are on our behalf, um, and that means higher taxes in the future. It's going to mean higher taxes on us. It's going to mean higher taxes on our children uh, and likely our, our grandchildren as well. And what do you say to the argument that some would make saying, yes, we do pay uh, high taxes, uh, there is that price, but look at what we get in return? Yeah, I, I think that's a really important part of the equation. I mean, we, we provide Tax Freedom Day so that Canadians have one side of the equation, and, and that's how much they pay. 
I think every Canadian has to make up their own mind in terms of are they getting value for money. I, I think many Canadians, for example, um, look at the services they're getting uh, and they might say, I'm getting good value for money. But there's a lot of Canadians who say, um, geez, I'm paying a lot in taxes. The average Canadian family, that's $43,000. Are, are they getting $43,000 in value uh, for the taxes that they pay? All right, Niels, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Appreciate you having me on, Jill. Well, as you uh, just heard on the news, uh, TransLink saying that SkyTrain will likely be back to pre-COVID levels sometime next week. And customers, users of SkyTrain are are being asked to consider using a face covering or a mask if the trains get busy. Also asking people to travel outside peak times if that's possible. It is not mandatory to wear a mask or a face covering at this point when riding transit to in and around Metro Vancouver. Let's bring in Mike Soren. He is a co-founder of Abundant Transit to BC and joins me on the line now. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, happy to be here. Uh, What exactly is Abundant Transit BC? So Abundant Transit BC is a grassroots not-for-profit. We're all volunteers, uh, and we are advocates for a safe, strong transit system uh, that everybody in BC has access to. All right, and you've been raising some concerns about uh, this move back, and as we get to more pre-COVID levels of ridership on transit, what are your concerns? Well, for the last uh, month or so, we've been really concerned uh, about essential riders uh, who've been on transit and other people who don't have an option for getting around to essential services like um, getting prescription drugs or groceries without transit as an option. Um, Every week, 150,000 people are still using transit. Um, And people like me, who are big uh, transit users ordinarily, really stepped back on using transit. So ridership is is way down, um, as it should be, as we've uh, most of us have been following public health advice. Um, And this has created a really worrying uh, funding situation for TransLink. And it's happening at the exact time that our economy is uh, is starting to reopen. So it's quite concerning that um, people are... uh, don't have the best, safest options available to them, especially when we see what transit systems around the world uh, have been able to do to protect people. So what would you like to see TransLink doing more of to protect people? Well, um, obviously, they need to continue doing what public health authorities have have suggested, which is maintaining that uh, physical distancing um, on the vehicles. Uh, I also want to see municipalities step up a little bit and make sure that physical distancing can be maintained in and around uh, station areas and bus stops. One of the problems we have is because these buses are running with such limited capacity to make sure people can distance on them, uh, you're seeing more pass-ups at the bus stop areas. Um, and so essentially, it's a downloading of the problem away from TransLink and onto our city streets. Um, and we've just got more crowding where people are waiting for buses and increasingly getting passed up. Um, Our worry is that as the economy continues to reopen and and people return to work and shopping, um, it's just going to bring more uh, risk to these public health workers and could actually uh, threaten uh, more infections and and even sort of stall the recovery if people don't feel comfortable um, getting back out there. Uh, So if wearing a mask stops you from spreading it doesn't, as we know from health officials, it doesn't offer you more protection, but it does stop you if you have the symptoms, if you have the virus, it stops you from spreading it. Would you like to see that be mandatory on transit? I would, actually. I mean, I think when you look at other cities that have had success um, with their transit systems, I think Taiwan is a, is a good example. 
Um, and there's many in Europe and, and across Asia where masks have been made mandatory. Um, and I think you can see that that, um, you know, that makes a really big difference. It would certainly uh, affect my own personal comfort level with getting back on transit. And we're starting to see polling as well that mandatory mask wearing does make people feel more comfortable uh, when it's time to return to transit. So I'd really like us to uh, to look at this. And I understand TransLink is bringing some uh, new uh, health measures to the mayor's council later this week. Um, and I hope that uh, they continue working with health authorities to um, uh, to add in sanitizer, mandatory masks, additional cleaners. Uh, my concern is that all of this add, adds significant cost to a transit system that is already in a revenue crisis. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite concerned that our, our federal government hasn't shown any support at all uh, for public transit in this country. Uh, what about the fact that buses stopped taking fares? They went to the rear loading and, and exiting to keep people away from the transit operators. Uh, do you think that was the right move, though, to stop taking in fares? Uh, as, a, as a public health measure, it seemed to be. And certainly I heard from drivers directly that it was very important to them. Um, as you know, uh, there's been a number of transit workers who, who died across uh, the United States. And I don't believe in Canada, but possibly um, and so this was a, a concern for them, was uh, being kept safe on, on buses as drivers. So rear door boarding was, um, was really welcome for a while. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, we weren't able to, to maintain it, and I, I wish we were, uh, because it certainly would keep um, everyone a little bit safer. Uh, but understandably, the, there's tough choices that need to be made in light of uh, a real revenue crisis. Gas tax revenue is down. Ridership revenue is down. Parking revenue is down. Um, our transit systems do not have the resources they need uh, to keep operating safely. Uh, and, and you mentioned the federal government. So are you suggesting that uh, the federal government or provincial government or the governments of all levels need to do something to boost that funding? Well, I think governments of all levels need to be more involved in supporting public transit. The provinces stepped up to stop the 1,500 layoffs and make sure, you know, uh, Three weeks ago, we were going to have 60 routes eliminated uh, this week. Um, so those reductions and eliminations have been stopped now because of provincial funding. But the crisis isn't over. Um, and actually, as more riders return to TransLink, the, the revenue crisis is only going to get worse. Um, they're still losing, I think, like 50 million, 50 million a month. Um, and what we've seen around the world is, is Trump in the United States and, and Boris Johnson in, in the UK, they have stepped up and supported their public transit systems, in both cases saying they understand how important it is to the economy, how important it is to public safety. Um, and the transit really is like police, fire, water. It is an essential service. Um, and our federal government cannot let our public transit agencies fail, uh, especially when they're offering so much support for private businesses um, like airlines and car dealers, um, we really need to uh, treat our public transit agencies um, uh, as well or better than we're treating these private companies. All right, Mike, we will leave it there. But thank you so much for making some time for us today. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for covering this. Well, we started the show today talking with Charles Gauthier with the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. They have been pushing for the rules and regulations to be relaxed when it comes to patio seating, restaurants, cafes, brew pubs, perhaps even using some of the public spaces by their places to open up seating, make it so people can distance and not have to go through weeks and months of hoops and red tape to make it happen. Uh, Vancouver Council did unanimously vote to 
in favor of relaxing things a little bit, but not as much as what the Business Improvement Association wanted. They were kind of hoping to let it go ahead. And then if there were issues, it would be complaint driven. That's not actually happening, but at least we have some baby steps leading to that. Well, another motion in the city of Richmond is being put forward. This would also see the application and the permit process in that city be relaxed a little bit. And that would allow, again, pubs, restaurants, cafes to expand and go onto those patios during this COVID-19 pandemic and as we see things reopen. Councillor Kelly Green is putting forward the motion and has agreed to chat with us for just a few moments now. Councillor, thank you so much for uh, taking Taking some time with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, have you put the motion forward at this point? Yep, it's on the agenda for today. All right, and what does it actually say? Uh, to create a streamlined application and permitting process for patios and as an accessory to existing restaurants, cafes, and pubs. So basically, you don't have to go through all the red tape. You don't have to jump all of these hoops if you want to reopen and have this outdoor space. To make it as easy as possible so you're not connecting with like four different departments and all this uh, kind of stuff that typically goes into some of the larger applications is that, I mean, a patio is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of plumbing, right? So um, let's make it as simple as possible. And do you have any sense as far as your fellow councillors how this is going to go? Uh, I'm hopeful that they're very supportive. Um, uh, I personally have heard quite a bit from both residents and the business community, that this is something that they're hoping for um, from the various perspectives that they each have. So I think that there is a lot of support in the community, and so hopefully we can move forward with this as quickly as possible. Are there specific parts of the city that you think this would be easier to to go ahead with, that there is the space for restaurants, cafes, pubs to do this? Yeah, definitely I can see it uh, to be uh, easier in Steesden. There's quite a drop all over the city in... um, Uh, vehicle traffic. So we really don't see the uh, requirement for as much parking. So there are uh, small pockets of um, uh, off-street parking, maybe one or two stalls, uh, as well as street front parking uh, that could be utilized without having a huge impact on um, uh, all the various users. And do you think it would be temporary or is this something, if it goes ahead, you would like to see permanent? Well, the the motion is for, you know, I'm anticipating it to be a temporary measure. But the thing is, is, you know, until we have a treatment or a vaccine for COVID, we're going to be doing some form or another of uh, distancing for as long as that takes. So this is probably a a medium term solution for the long term. I would be really interested in seeing how um, well this takes. I think it's going to be very popular. Um, And, you know, other cities have implemented this before COVID uh, as just a way to animate and uh, get people out onto the streetscape rather than driving around in cars and really not interacting. So we can enliven and beautify our streetscape and maybe that's something that can stick. And and you mentioned Steveston, which is an interesting one, because anybody who's been to Steveston on a beautiful summer day will know that parking is premium, or at least pre-COVID mm-hmm. parking is premium. It is a destination for a lot of people. Uh, do you think there are the crowds coming back or there are enough people then to sustain to doing this? I think the way that people are getting to Steveston right now has changed a lot. I've seen so many people down there on bikes. So I head down there on my bike and I've got to tell you that it's 
from from my observations, at least quadrupled. So I think a lot of people in the area may have been, you know, oh, I'll just hop into the car. It's, it's a five-minute drive. Maybe they're thinking, wow, I've been stuck at home all day working because I'm working from home. I'd really like to take a ride and just taste and stretch my legs. So I think that the way that we're going to be interacting with our city is going to be changing um, significantly over the long run. And does it deal with, does the motion deal with the idea of, because one of the things that keeps being brought up in this is this idea of restaurants then taking over public spaces or then having the license to, well, I can serve you a burger or a beer, but if this was a public space where previously somebody could just sit there without purchasing something, it's kind of losing that public space. Is there any concern there? Mm -hmm. Well, this wouldn't be taking over, for example, like a sidewalk space. So if somebody would, for example, have been walking down the sidewalk and wanted to sit on a bench and just rest their legs for a minute, I'm, I don't think that the proposal is to take over those spaces. The proposal is really to take a look at surplus parking uh, in a way that we haven't considered before, whether that's relaxing the zoning rules that you have to have a certain number of spaces for this kind of or size of building, um, or whether that's a, a reasonably um, accessible lease for street front parking. And we do offer rentals for street front parking for other kinds of businesses, like, um, for example, uh, the movie industry um, often rents um, parking uh, spaces, street Parking. Um, so, like, these are the things that are happening anyway. So, if we can just make it accessible in a way that makes sense for the way that business is going to have to operate, I think that we'd be doing everybody a favor. And are you hearing from restaurants and pubs or brew pubs and businesses that would like to see this option? Uh, I've definitely heard from a couple restaurants um, and I've heard from uh, residents in the community, you know, in favor of the, in, uh, anticipating that their favorite restaurant would perhaps be able to have some outdoor space because it doesn't already or has very limited space. And they can see the way that um, our spacing is, is better to be out, uh, out, outdoors. So if we're having outdoor patios, it really, I think, helps everybody feel a little bit better about being able to support their local businesses. And and I know we've been talking about Steveston, but what about some of the more commercial parts, say number three road or some other parts of the city mm-hmm. where there's more density? Yeah, I think three road would be uh, much more challenging because of the way that it's set up for um, uh, the, the major bus lines. Uh, but that's not to say that off of number three road, that if you're on a, a side street, that maybe we can look at the parking uh, or the street from parking, or if you uh, have a parking lot and maybe one or two of the stalls make sense for where your um, business is located, that we could take a look at one or two, you know, stalls to create a patio space for you there. Um, There is a possibility uh, in the restaurant district, like by Alexandria, that there is quite a lot of off-street parking, and uh, it may be that it it makes sense to reorganize some of that uh, in favour of having uh, more outdoor space for people to be able to... uh, Uh, distance socially. Uh, So this is going to Council's uh, General Purposes Committee today. Uh, When are you expecting or hoping for uh, some kind of decision? Uh, Well, if it's uh, considered favorably, we can, uh, what would happen is we would likely be referring it to staff to go ahead and start um, uh, working on a plan to make it happen, which would come back to Council for ratification um, as soon as possible. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. Councillor Kelly Green, thank you so much uh, for uh, joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.